Hello and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gill, and here with me is biologist and founder of Disciple Science, Professor Dale Gentry. Good morning, or afternoon, or whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> Glad you're here. <laughs> also here is Disciple Science teacher and theologian, Dr. Joel Juckstock. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's a beautiful day to be exploring the intersection of science and faith. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Today we're talking about video number one, what's behind the tension between science and faith. You can watch that video at DiscipleScience.com or on our YouTube channel. Um, you could pause right now and watch it uh, if you're not operating a motor vehicle. But uh, we're going to go, uh, we're going to use this episode and the next one uh, to talk through uh, in a bit, little bit more depth about that tension, what's behind it. And if you haven't caught that video yet, you'll be able to follow along with this uh, with this just fine. Just come back to the video for a recap if you want. Uh, otherwise, Dale, why don't you kick us off? What is behind the tension between science and faith? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, we thought we'd start here because that's what we're going to try and wrestle with in, on this channel. And, and oh my goodness, there's a lot that goes into trying to answer that. Um, so again, we, we, we are addressing this from a few different angles and certainly not every angle that we, we can, but I want to start by digging into a little bit of the history uh, of, of how we got to the place where we are, right? And by, what I mean by that is, you know, there's this perception in society that, that uh, society, that, that science and faith are, are at loggerheads, that there's this conflict model or the war model. Religion and science haven't always uh, been at war. They haven't always existed in the way that they currently do. And if we go back in time, we don't even have to go back that far, just a couple hundred years to the um, development of modern science, we would actually find that there wasn't much conflict. And many of the scientists were Christians and their approach was, was very... Uh, complementary to having a faith. And so what I want to do is dig into how we went from that position a couple hundred years ago with um, some of those early scientists to where we are today, where there's this perception that they don't get along to see if we can make sense out of what changed along the way and what why we have this perception of, of incompatibility. Uh, and so if we if we step back and take a really big picture approach, which is kind of the way I think about things sometimes, there shouldn't be a, a conflict. If we have this sense um, of the Judeo-Christian God that uh, that is the creator of the universe and is the the God that we worship, then studying what that God created should give us some greater sense of of who that God is. Uh, and so, a very overly simplistic view, there shouldn't be conflict. Um, I want to share a quote from one of my favorite theologians, John Stott, uh, who passed away a few years ago. Um, and just to give us a sense of, of this from, from the, his uh, theological perspective, he says, uh, the God who in himself, <clears throat> excuse me, the God who in himself is invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. The creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God, an intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. So just, just as artists reveal themselves in what they draw, paint, and sculpt, so the divine artist has revealed himself in what he has created. So in the video, uh, we said something like, science gives us a better understanding of God's creation, so it should give us a better understanding of God. 
so where is the tension there? How do we deviate from this view that Stott provides? Uh, there is there's some history of discomfort in finding knowledge about God from anything other than Scripture. Uh, and actually, this is a gradual process of coming to the sense that we could. Uh, once the Scriptures existed in their current forms, you know, which was a few hundred years after Jesus, uh, is, I think that's about right, Joel. That, yeah, depending on the books we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, yeah, I know some of the Old Testament existed, uh, um, you know, in the Septuagint before Jesus, but... Uh, anyhow, course, yeah. some, some version of modern scripture mm-hmm. in the centuries after Jesus. Uh, we started using those scriptures as a source of knowledge that could answer our questions. Um, and so deep existential questions like, you know, why can't I use my willpower to make myself pure and good um, to more sort of practical questions like, why is it raining outside today? So scripture had answers, but people found that some of the answers weren't adequate. Uh, People started to question some of the answers that were derived from Scripture. And that led to the eventual development of science, which had different answers, and many people found um, better answers, at least to questions like, why is it raining? Um, And so, you can imagine if science gave different answers than the theological interpretation of scriptures, it, it did cause some tension, which is some of why we are where we are now. Some of the tension lies in debate about what's more prone to misinterpretation, our scientific understandings of nature or the theological understandings of scripture. And there's a sense among some Christians that interpretations of the scriptures are, are quite simple and straightforward and that science is much more complex and therefore much more prone to misinterpretation. And therefore, there's this debate about who, you know, where do we, where do we default? Uh, should we default to scripture or should we default to science? Yeah, that sounds really, uh, that sounds like a really important concept. Um, Joel, do you want to talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe why that, uh, why, why we get confused on that? Right. Well, I think it has a lot to do with the history of how we've moved from theological inquiry, so to speak, to um, a more modern view of education as we know it now. And um, to sort of explain that and to illustrate what what Dale is talking about, it's important for us to kind of quickly turn back to the Middle Ages. During this time, education shifted from what was called a Christian cathedral school or a monastery to the, the modern medieval university. And so uh, in the Christian cathedral school, uh, the purpose of, of asking questions um, about nature and reality and using reason was primarily focused on uh, issues of theological nature. Uh, for example, people would wonder about the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist uh, and offer a more in-depth uh, explanation as to how this mystery occurs in creation and, and try to use human reason to do that. Um, and in this in this time, um, focus began to shift, though, from that cathedral school to the modern university, where now 
theology uh, as a discipline uh, was becoming rooted in an educational system and needing to find itself in new ways. And so there was increasing specialization between these two things and, and a gap began to emerge um, between the disciplines. Um, and so in this way, what really matters for the purposes of our discussion is that religious institutions uh, served as the primary source of what was thought to, to be most important in the world. And that was the place where scientific inquiry uh, resided until the scientific revolution and the enlightenment. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, uh, I mean, that brings an example to mind. Um, there were, uh, you know, some of these early scientists. They weren't called scientists yet. This is back when when the, the field of science was called natural philosophy. Uh, but they did question. They were exploring things like force and motion. Some of the early science was really about physics. Uh, and there was very little at least modern, like my science of ecology certainly didn't exist back then. But in the early scientists, they were really interested in force and motion. And there's this um, fascinating account that I read where uh, people were proposing models of how, how things move and, and what causes motion. And they wanted to be able to explain those things um, in the context of their understanding of God. So this, this idea of questions about science, like why is this object in motion, they wanted to be related to some theological conclusion, like how, how God's responsible for things that are in motion. And so um, I don't remember the, the name of the scientist who was in, involved in this, but he proposed this model of one body acting on another. Uh, um, so one ball hits another ball, and the energy from the first ball is transferred into the second ball, and the second ball moves. Um, and that's something that we would expect to see in like a high school physics lab. You know, everybody's comfortable with the idea of one ball exerting a force on the other. But it caused this, um, this, this problem in that people said, wait a minute, the, the ball can't be responsible. The first ball can't be responsible for making the second ball move because God needs to be given account for all, all movement, all, all actions. And so there was a theological consequence for the explanation that one ball caused the movement of the second ball. Um, and and I, I find that really, um, you know, in our modern society, that's so hard to wrap our mind around how people might think that way. And that's kind of what we're trying to get at here is, is peel apart how people made scientific explanations in the context of how God is involved in those things. And eventually science started asking and answering its own questions that weren't, you know, related to theological questions. So I don't want to dig into that in too much in, in excruciating detail, but but there was this um, marriage of science and an understanding of God, and then we saw them start to separate from each other. Does that sound about right, Joel? Yeah, that's right, Dale. Actually, uh, well, the Enlightenment followed the Reformation, and the combination of, of these two eras created a, a society in which uh, individuals felt more empowered to ask and seek answers to their own questions. What resulted from this is that science and religion, which previously overlapped like we were talking about and with your example, began an existence independent of each other. There began to uh, be a growing distance between the two and um, that close-knit relationship they once shared began to uh, spread apart. Yeah, so I think this is where we start to see some of where the tension is going to come in because as science 
started to exist in its own world, asking its own questions and using, really, using its own methods to answer those questions, um, uh, people were concerned with the answers that they gave. And, and one of the interesting aspects is that what is the, the, uh, the emergence of the method of science. Uh, so what, what came about during that time, the, the scientific revolution, was uh, a model of the scientific method that we call empiricism. So that's, a, that's kind of a, a doozy, but basically just means gathering data from what you see out in nature to answer your questions, right? So it's just empiricism means, uh, do, an, an empirical study means doing, you know, gathering data from the world to answer your questions, as opposed to using uh, revelation from scripture or just using uh, human reason. So like the ideas that you were saying, and just to jump in, the, the ideas you, you had talked about, revelation had been there around for a long time as, as, a, as a foundation for truth. Uh, reason had been around for a long time as a way of working things out. But, uh, you know, with the Enlightenment, we had, uh, you know, a, a, a building on that. There was, a, there was empiricism which is, I guess, the, the foundation for the scientific method, uh, is what I'm hearing. Um, and that changed the way people saw the world, uh, and I guess including how people saw the scriptures. Uh, how, how did this play out during the Enlightenment and then, and then afterwards? Right, I think it's important to quickly tease out the idea of reason and revelation to explain that fully. Reason is, is the, the human capacity to sort of consciously make sense of things, to use our minds to ask questions and seek answers. Revelation is something that uh, comes from God, and uh, it was you know, believed and still is uh, through the scriptures and other ways that revelation is the way in which we experience God's um, giving of knowledge or giving of God's self to us through a variety of, of mediums, whatever that might be. Um, and during this time, uh, there was sort of a hierarchy between reason mm -hmm. and revelation, right? Uh, so revelation uh, was assumed to trump human reason because it came from God, but part of what people began to notice uh, was the locus of authority around that and where, um, where the decisions to articulate um, revelation came from was the church. And so as people became more independent in their thinking, their asking of questions, there began to be some questioning about the, the way in which revelation was um, maintaining such strong authority over reason. Um, and this empirical data that was emerging um, was suggesting that there was a better way to access knowledge in the world. Yeah, yeah, sure, or at least a different way, right? And right, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that this, that there are a number of examples of this <clears throat> that we can go through, and this is during the 16th and 17th century, this, so this is four or 500 years ago, um, and as, as science was starting to emerge, and as we said, as, as people started feeling free to ask questions independent of the answers they might get from Scripture, uh, we, we saw some, some conflicts start to arise. So one of the real prominent ones in this intersection of science and faith is how old is the earth? And what's interesting is that we don't really see this as a, as a prominent question uh, centuries ago like it was today, but it was a, it was a topic of interest, but it wasn't, it wasn't the big debate that it was today. Um, and I think there's some evidence that shows uh, the earliest attempts to estimate that came in the um, first centuries after Jesus. So about 2,000 years ago, people tried to calculate the age of the earth. And they did so with this assumption uh, that the uh, account in Genesis 1 
is a depiction of the first day of the existence of anything. And at the end of that creation week, we have the uh, creation of Adam and Eve. And that we then later in Genesis, we have these, these genealogies. And so uh, those genealogies are giving us uh, an account. And there's a lot of debate, but most people agree that those genealogies are incomplete. But at least we, go, we, go, we can go from Adam to Noah and Noah to Abraham and then Abraham to Jesus and Jesus to now. And if you, if you piece all those numbers together, you get about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham and about 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus and then about 2,000 years. Obviously, that's not terribly debated from Jesus to now. And so you end up with this number of about 6,000 years old. And so here we see an answer to a very scientific question, how old is the earth? And the answer is derived from scripture. And then, um, again, during the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, this is actually tied to the industrial revolution because we started seeing value in this black rock that nobody was interested in before called coal. And so we started mining for coal and what's interesting in these accounts is that these coal mines, some of which were dug deep in the ground, they would find that as you go deeper and deeper underground, it got warmer and warmer. And that was a real conundrum to people because, you know, if you go into a shallow cave, it's cooler. If you go deeper and deeper, it gets warmer. And so people actually tried to um, calculate the age of the earth based off of an assumption that the earth used to be hot and that it's very gradually cooling down. And that as you go deeper in the crust, it's getting colder and colder. So they say, okay, what we know about thermodynamics, how long would it take for this very hot earth to cool down to its current state where the core temperature is some number and the surface temperature is what we experience? And they said, oh my, it must be much older than 6,000 years that was estimated. Uh, and then uh, we see the development of sort of modern geology and the study of geological layers. And long story short, we end up with numbers that were much older than 6,000 years. They were estimating mil a million years or maybe millions of years. And we now know that with radiometric dating, mainstream science um, estimates the Earth to be about four and a half billion years old. So. That's a stark, stark difference from the 6,000-year estimate that came from the Bible. So this empirically co collected data didn't fit very well with the, with the answer that was derived from Scripture, and obviously that caused some, some conflict. Um, you know, there are other, other few examples. I don't want to belabor them too much, but just to help people understand some of these stories. Uh, there are questions about the nature of living things and... Uh, were they uh, created in their current forms? And again, early understandings of the creation account from the first pages of the Bible led people to assume that everything was created in its modern form. This is an idea that was called the fixity of species. So it just means that species uh, are now the way they always have been. And so when people started discovering fossils and that things had gone extinct and evidence that species were changing subtly, or at least these ideas that maybe species had changed over time, this idea of evolution, it called into question this idea that all species were created in their current forms. And that if you had been hanging around in that, you know, that uh, creation account in the Garden of Eden, you would have been able to recognize, oh, there's a you know, a tiger and there's a giraffe and there's a, uh, you know, a, a wolf or whatever it might be. Um, you see, I default to the large animals, <laughs> like, like all of us probably. Um, and that 
basically that those species would have always existed in their current forms. And so as, as science started to question that, again, it caused some tension and some conflict um, that led to questions about the accuracy of biblical revelation, uh, which is some of where the conflict currently sits. Yeah, the most famous conflict outside the origins debate was between Copernicus and Galileo. Uh, Galileo collected data that convinced him of what was first proposed by Copernicus, that the earth revolved around the sun. And this is called heliocentrism, which uh, is different than the, the sun revolving around the earth or geocentrism. We'll explore both of these uh, issues in more detail. Um, but for now, the geocentrist view was thought to be the biblical view from many different verses that talked about the sun moving, rising, and setting. The earth being fixed and the account in Joshua, the sun standing still in the sky to extend the day so that Israel could win the war in Joshua chapter 10. The heliocentric view supported by Galileo and Copernicus, uh, the study of the heavens, which uh, con contradicted what was thought to be taught in the scripture, and this caused some great conflict. Yeah, so uh, these are just a couple of the examples where the scientific consensus, um, they sided with the empirical data and what was gathered from, from science. Um, to some degree, it was kind of testable and, and it made sense. And they sided then with the science rather than the biblical understandings, and that caused this split, uh, this kind of taking of sides where people felt like they had to choose, am I on the side of the science or I, am I on the side of the scripture? Um, and so that led to some revisions of the interpretation of scripture in the case of the Galileo affair in, in a different way than it did um, in the debate about the origins uh, or the age of the earth, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, so tell me, I mean, so how did people choose which, when they would uh, side with, uh, I guess, empirical uh, study and when they would side with scripture? Well, there was quite a bit of um, uh, hand-wringing over this, but they came to this idea that that there were doctrines that were sort of bedrock and that we, we can't deviate from those, and that there were others that maybe people were willing to concede that they were derived from Scripture, but they weren't explicit. And so after the Galileo and Copernicus affair, it actually took... Uh, centuries, but eventually everybody came to peace with the idea that, oh, those, that's not what those verses were trying to tell us. They were not intended to tell us that the earth is at the center of our solar system and that everything's revolving around that. And they accepted a, you know, an alternative interpretation, basically a non-scientific interpretation. We, we read those scriptures through the eyes of the audience that, that wrote them and the audience that they were written to said it's okay to understand them through ancient eyes. But then when it came to questions about the age of the earth, and especially questions about evolution and the idea that God created all life forms, you know, out of nothing, uh, as according to this historical view of, uh, it's not historical view, but sorry, the, the view that Genesis is a historical narrative, some people felt much uh, more strongly that we needed to hold on to that view. So they're willing to acknowledge that the position of the earth in the solar system was not a central dogma of Christianity, but many people did feel that the creation account was 
uh, had theological implications, and they just didn't want to budge on that. And so it kind of depended on what was being challenged in Scripture that led to people's flexibility or lack of flexibility about how to reinterpret things. Well, this almost uh, you're kind of almost describing this with with war metaphors. Like it's okay if we <laughs> if we accept the loss on that hill, we're going to defend this hill uh, with every uh, <laughs> you know with everything we've got. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I, it's... I probably shouldn't use those metaphors because we're trying to get away from this <laughs> this uh, this conflict model of science and faith, right? We want to present it as compatible, and it probably is just evidence of of the uh, you know the perception that society has and and the way people talk about it. But uh, but there was there there certainly was and still is uh, a taking of sides, and what we want to get away from is this idea that that's what we have to do, that it's that I'm on the side of science or I'm on the side of scripture and that I can't find compatibility uh, between them together. Right. Yeah, and, and that's a really a false dichotomy, but the implication of that for us now is that it, uh, choosing scripture and ignoring scientific conclusions or vice versa leaves us in a situation where we're not able to engage in a dialogue that might otherwise help us. And so being able to hold that tension and, and kind of navigate that together is, 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 well, it's really why we're here in this room, but it's also, <laughs> it's, uh, it's important for us all to be able to, to be able to appreciate um, the, the, that the dichotomy doesn't have to be as concrete and rigid as it might feel at times. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think what we've, what we've tried to depict here is some of how people reacted, but I don't want to, portray it as this is the only options that lay before us. As, as Joel said, that there are a lot of people that have worked through this stuff and found that this stereotyping of, of uh, being forced to choose between uh, you know, a, a really high view of scripture and a, a sense of science's ability to understand the world on its own terms, that those things somehow just don't fit well together. And, and I really think that they do. Um, so we want to yeah, step away from that dichotomy. Right. And the reality of, of living into that is far more complex than we make it seem now. Right? <laughs> I mean, uh, some of us uh, may have dismissed uh, our faith precisely because of uh, literalistic approaches to Scripture, and others uh, may have retained their faith because they believe so fiercely of any inconsistencies in Scripture are found. Then if they're found, then, then faith will just fold. Um, but many of us are also comfortable putting our faith in God and ignoring some of these questions entirely. Um, and each of these, um, in painting with a broad brush, um, represent, I think, various ways to handle um, the, the tension that we're talking about. Um, but we, we believe that there are responsible ways to deal with each of these perspectives and to, to live into, the, the, again, this tension between faith and science. Um, and we're going to try to detail them more as we kind of live into this project. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think it, some of you are probably left wanting more information. And and uh, if you go to our website, you'll actually see that we plan uh, videos and probably you know multiple uh, podcast sessions to to dig through this stuff. We're not going to leave that Copernicus and Galileo story alone. We're going to get back into the geology and the and the debate about origins. So so if 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 we left you with more questions than answers, uh, hopefully those some of that detail is forthcoming. 
Well, thanks, guys, for that brisk walk through uh, <laughs> centuries of history. No, it's uh, I mean, it's a fascinating discussion. And like you said, there's a lot more to talk about. We'll, um, we'll be doing a lot of this. Uh, we'll have this conversation for, for, for a long time. So, you know, come back next week. We've, we've got more to talk about on, the, um, on our, you know, that first video still, uh, other, other themes that are going to come up. So, you know, next week we'll talk about the methods we use in science, how they can influence the way we actually see everything around us. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you back next week. Thank you for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. We're a crowdfunded nonprofit organization exploring the intersection of science and faith. If you agree it's important for Christians to engage with science in these questions, please support us by making a donation on our website, disciplescience.com. We couldn't do this without audience members like you. If this discussion stirred up any questions of your own, and we hope it did, we hope you'll send those to us either at our email address at disciplescience1 at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at disciplescience or submit them on our Facebook page. We also want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. You can tell others about Disciple Science by sharing a link to a video or podcast by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.